0: Hello and welcome to Second Rate Film School. My name is Andrew Wass, and today we're going to be discussing one of mine and a lot of people in my generation's favorite TV shows, Courage of the Cowardly Dog. From its inception to the episodes you remember, the ones you've forgotten, its legacy and beyond, we're going to cover it all. This will be a multi-part retrospective because we have a lot of ground to cover with this show. And the reason we have a lot of ground to cover is we have a very special slate of guest stars all responsible for different aspects of creating and shaping the show. So without further ado, let's meet our guest stars. Our first guest star is series creator, director, and writer, John R. Dilworth.
1: Hello, Andrew. Very nice to be here. Nice to be anywhere, but especially here.
0: Next up, we have the head writer of the show, David Stephen Cohen. Thank you. Thank you. Staff writer and animatic supervisor, William Hohauser.
2: I, I thank you, and I, I thank you for uh, having me here. I hope uh, I can clarify a few things uh, of
0: what we're talking about. Musical composer, Jody Gray. Hi, good to see you. And last but not least, the man behind The Voice of Courage and His Screams, Marty Grabstein. Welcome to the show. Hey, this is, yeah, just a pleasure to be here with Andrew over here on, on another delightful
3: Zoom call. I look forward to whatever we're going to be creating together. It's, I'm sure it's going to be wonderful. I feel a lot of confidence and your, your 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 pedigree uh, 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 precedes you. How's that? <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's a very fancy word to describe the fun we'll be having today. Before we get started, I do want to just thank you guys for taking time to stop on by because I've been a lifelong fan of Courage ever since I was a little kid. This was like one of my favorite TV shows. I watched it all the time. And even though the show's on streaming, I still had to pick up the box set. It's really been a joy re-watching all the episodes leading up to our discussion. I've probably watched more Courage in the past month than I have in the past 20 years. So without further ado, let's drive out to the middle of nowhere and dive right in.
1: (music) Something horrible wants to destroy our humble nowhere shack. Who will protect our home? Someone protect our
3: home. Who will protect our home? Courage, the cowardly dog. Courage, the cowardly dog.
0: To start with, our story actually begins a little earlier than the November 12, 1999 premiere of the series proper. Back in 1994, John made a short film called Dirty Birdie. While not actually having anything to do with Courage itself, the influence this short had on the series is undeniable. We see a lot of the hallmarks that Courage would later have the irreverent humor, character designs, and the really interesting and unique music. <laughs> Though obviously the biggest stepping stone to the series came one year later in 1995 with the short film The Chicken from Outer Space. Pretty much all the elements that you would associate with the series were present here. You have the 1950s, you know, B movie sci fi feel. You have Eustace and Muriel, Eustace's Ooga Booga Booga mask. Booga Booga Booga! Eustace being punished for his misdeeds in the short. <laughs> and of course, Courage the Cowardly Dog. Yeah! Now, John, can you talk about the creation and genesis of this short and how it got involved in the Cartoon Network, What a Cartoon Block?
1: The Chicken from Outer Space was just another short film. And I needed funding. So I heard that uh, Fred Seibert was shopping for, you know, some product. And initially I had given him Dirty Birdie. But Andrew, they weren't going to touch Dirty Birdie. They weren't going to put that on the air. So I had the storyboards for The Chicken from Outer Space. It was black and white. I was gonna do it as a sci-fi movie in black and white. And I pitched that and yeah, I was very excited about that. Initially, Eustace didn't have a mask. He had a shotgun, just like Warner Brothers. And Eustace was firing at Courage, blasting him. He never hit him, of course, because right, what's the the history of our animation? no one got hurt in Warner Brothers cartoons, MGM cartoons. It's just like that.
0: I can actually picture that perfectly. You know, just seeing Eustace going around the farmhouse with a shotgun, you know, the really rough patterns being blown out of the side of the house, the couch, the props, etc. cetera. Kirch's diving under everything for cover. It would have really been great and would have fit really right at home in a Looney Tunes cartoon. That being said, I can see why Cartoon Network said you couldn't do it. At least we did get the iconic running gag of the Ooga Booga Booga mask, which that's a pretty good consolation prize. So William, outside of John, you're one of the few people and the only one on the show today that worked both on the series and the short serving as its editor. So how did you get involved in that and then get brought back for the series?
2: Well, um, way back then, way back when, uh, I worked with other animation people, uh, you know, on and off. I, I, I had a regular video business where I was, you know, I have a camera, I film things, you know, interviews, edit for other people. Also, if you look at my resume, it's like, it's, it's everywhere. But one of the things I did was work for animation people who were based in New York. So I did a, a quite a bit of work for uh, Greg Ford when he was doing the uh, return of the Warner Brothers uh, theatrical uh, animations back in the 80s and the early 90s. So uh, he would bring the animatics to me, and uh, you know those are basically drawn-out storyboards, and we would either do the do do the soundtrack ourselves. It's like, oh hey, you over there, do Daffy Duck, I'm Daffy Duck. That's terrible, but who cares? We were just timing it, and we would get the drawings and stack them up and put them on videotape. Tape. We're editing on tape. Uh, you know everything, so we get a good idea of what was happening. And I uh, also, I was working with a few other people, uh, you know, for commercials and other animated projects. So a mutual friend of John's and mine, who I hadn't met John yet, uh, his name was Mark Heller. He was at that time uh, running an animated uh, commercial firm. So he was he was making animated commercials for various clients. Uh, you know nationally and locally and he said oh i have a guy we're doing a commercial uh he, he's a little strange uh but i think you could work with him and i said strange send them in and uh in comes john and it was some commercial for i don't i don't remember and john doesn't even care <laughs> we both of us had no clue what the commercial was but we sat there and we put the little 30 second commercial together and did a little adjustments here and there. And it was just basically we were screwing around and joking. And he said, ah, you know, I'm, I'm just coming back to you. You're, everybody else is boring. You're not boring. Okay. I don't know if that's a good thing to say, but that's what he said. Uh, but he came back and he said, oh, I'm doing this thing for Hanna-Barbera, which is uh, the what a
0: cartoon exp- experimental series. Officially, it was a short film program that was meant to put the power back in the creators' hands, and also serve as a testing ground for potential pilots for Cartoon Network. And John, I believe, uh,
2: got in on the strength of his short, "Dirty Birdie," uh, which he he brought to, he, well, it came through me before it was on. So, and uh, he he got the commission, and sure enough, we he did all the animatics himself, and we put it together, uh, no music, no, there was no sound, there was no dialogue track for that. It was a, it was a pantomime cartoon um, and and that's, and you know, there was a few little, Not most of it was done fine. I mean, I, I don't want to take any credit for it, but it was like little details and this John's like, and I said, why don't you, you know, put some parsley around the cooked chicken, you know, on the plate, no, just don't have a cooked chicken have it already on a platter with parsley and some potatoes or whatever else he goes that's it you know oh thank you okay and then after that he was like okay you know we're doing the series and I want you on it helping me write he's like you
0: (laughs) your ideas are okay they're a little off the side off from the side but that's good So John, the short was actually so well received, it was nominated for Best Animated Short at the 1996 Academy Awards, unfortunately losing to the Wallace and Gromit Short, A Close Shave. So what was that like being nominated?
1: Well, it was a thrill, of course. It's a great honor to be selected by your peers uh, for some distinction in a pursuit that uh, you're passionate about, of course. Pivoting briefly
0: back to the What A Cartoon Shorts program, A lot of heavy hitters from Cartoon Network in this era came out of that program as well. Dexter's Lab, Powerpuff Girls, Johnny Bravo, Cow and Chicken, to name a few. But, your short was the only one that had the acclaim of being nominated for an Academy Award. And despite that fact, it actually had the longest lead time from the short to the premiere of the series. With the short airing for the first time on February 18, 1996, and the series being released
1: November 12, 1999, so what
0: was the deal with that long of a lead time?
1: There was a uh, a political transition. Hanna-Barbera was folding. And at the time, Ted Turner was interested in starting a cartoon studio, a network. And it was called Cartoon Network. And Betty Cohen was the first president. And it was amazing because um, you had a couple of really powerful brains behind that. You had Linda Siminski and Mike Lazo. And I know Brian Miller was part of that too. And Fred Seibert and Betty Cohen. I mean, you couldn't get a more dynamite group of executives that understood animation. And that's vital. Well, luckily the
0: transition happened and the show got greenlit. So now it's time to start assembling the cast and crew. To begin with, David, how did you get involved with being the head writer for the series?
4: The show had been picked up already by Cartoon Network. It, uh, you know, the Oscar-nominated short acted as a pilot for the series. And there were a couple of episodes in, looking, still looking for the head writer. And uh, one, of the, uh, uh, one of the people working on the show, uh, was sort of at John's right hand, um, her brother, Dallin Neuwirth, had worked with me on a Dr. Seuss series and recommended me for the gig. It was the best way to, you know, is another situation where an agent or a manager had nothing to do with it, but, you know, took the 10%. Uh, and uh, the best possible way, you know, I worked with someone who liked me and thought I did a good job running this Dr. Seuss series. And, and when somebody recommends you, it's very meaningful because they're putting their reputation on the line So that's, you know, that was my involvement. I had a sort of initially I I walk into a room and I, and I don't know, and John's an interesting fellow and uh, it just, it just all happened. And suddenly we're making the show and you don't get to stop to think about, you know, I just want to do the best version of the show that John has created and, and and serve that vision. Um, So, you know, When I started, I started, you know, this is from zero to 60 in in a second. (laughs) There was a lot of work to be done already.
0: So, Jody, how did you get brought in?
5: Well, it's a little circuitous. Uh, In 1996, um, John's producer at that time, uh, Rob Marcus, who was working with John, his his future wife was in a band that, that Andy Ezrin was playing in. And he said, okay, I'm working with this guy. Um, He's a really, really good animator and he's just really a wacky guy. And maybe uh, you'd like to work with him. So Andy said, well, um, I'd have to bring Jody in, Jody Gray in because he's like, you know the computer maven and composer. He's done a lot of film work and blah, 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 blah. blah, So we really want to do it together. So, we did this thing with John uh, called Noodles and Ned, and it was a wonderful experience as far as understanding John. John does not want anything to be in any way average. He wants to, you know, to go to 120% or thousand percent with everything. He wants to go way over the top. So, like we did a couple of things in this show, which were sort of John Williams-esque. For instance, I'll give you an example. And then he said, oh, no, 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 no. Have all of those instruments played by toy instruments. So uh, instead of trumpets, there were all these geeky, really geeky things that we did. And it was really wonderful, it worked out well. So we kind of got his sensibility and it was very much ours. So we kind of forgot about it. And then, um, I don't know, whatever, two years later, three years later. You know, and uh, Andy and I got a call from Reese Newworth, who was his associate producer, and said, hey, we'd really like you to do this, but it's competitive. We were competing with a lot of people like Mark Mothersbaugh and all kinds of other people who uh, were originally you know, slated to do it. And Mark had this huge hit with Rugrats at the time and stuff. So anyway, Andy and I said, well, let's do you know, what we do. Let's go way over the top and do something really nuts. And the first thing that we did was, you know, that crazy little loopy, (laughs) the, you know, the theme for cats. And, you know, John went crazy and we got the gig. So that's how it began. That's actually very interesting. That wasn't one of the main
0: themes, but a villain theme. And we'll get into that a little bit later. Well, now all that leaves us with is casting Courage himself. Now, something that I never realized as a kid and find very interesting is Marty wasn't the original voice of Courage. In The Chicken from Outer Space short, he's voiced by Howard Huffman. So, Marty, how did you end up getting cast in the series? And did Howard's performance impact your performance in any way? Courage in that, forget about, like, lines.
3: There were barely sounds coming out of Courage. There weren't a lot of sounds at all coming out of him they were like oh, 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 you know like there were things but if you watch that film not only not words but not really that many sounds so at the end of the film there was zero lines and then you hear howard huffman go this
2: shouldn't happen to a
3: dog in that deep kind of thing and it was a little like jackie mason like you know so i think In his mind, at that early incarnation of it, uh, Dilworth had a thought that he would be somehow this neurotic Jewish (laughs) guy somehow. So, you know, what happened was is that I got a call from a friend of mine who actually I had fallen out of touch with. Uh, Risa earth she called me I had, I had not spoken to her in almost five years and I and she had called me and said that um you know I see I thought of you because I was I saw she actually I think she saw my name in a newspaper at one point um because I was doing sketch comedy uh, in the city. I think this is how it went down. And, and uh, I'm doing sketch comedy with a partner. And, um, and um, so she saw that I'm still in the bin and like right away it kicked in and we hadn't spoken in maybe five or six years. And, and she said, uh, Marty, I thought of you, You know, I'm working for this guy, John Dilworth, who's creating this new animated series called Courage the Cowardly Dog. And he is looking for the voice of the lead character, Courage. And he's listened to what appears to be every voiceover artist in the city and still could not make a decision. So at this point, I'm just, I'm opening it up to what I can think of, thinking out of the box. And it reached out to me and I had not done really voiceover uh, work to to speak of. Um, And uh, so she called me up and I, you know, she basically described what the character is. I mean, I didn't really think about it because I didn't know what he wanted. Neither did she, by the way. She couldn't even give me a, a, a hint as to how I should do it because he, she, have, she no longer understood what he wanted. And may I add, probably he himself did not know what he wanted. And sure enough, I went into the event. I went into the into the uh, thing, and you know, ironically speaking, since I since it's interesting, and actors, you know, I was talking about the actor's ego. I was kind of walking into this, you know, potentially very exciting thing, right? Lead character audition for a cartoon series, uh, you know, for Cartoon Network, um, brought in by somebody from the inside who brought me in special. So she talked me up. So I got a wonderful, um, you know, intro, so to speak. I had nothing to lose. And it, 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 in a, I felt strangely in a powerful position. It, it was like right away, I hit it off with John. We, you know, we were joking around and, and I was kind of doing like this. Ah, uh, what do I do? What do I do? I, I, you know, I'm, I'll save you, Muriel. I, 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 I was, I, I, and I was doing all that stuff. I just started doing it. I didn't think about it. I just started doing it. And he was laughing from it. And I'm thinking John was laughing and I was thinking something's going on here. There was like a level of excitement kind of well, that, that I could see in front of me. So I kept doing it. So John said, okay, can you do this though?" He said, it sounds a little like Jackie Mason. He actually said that. Can you put it, you know, like raise the, the, the temper of it the tone of it high the, you know uh and i so, so i went up here what do i do what do i do and that's when he said that's it that's it i think we got to do a few more and i did a few more things and he was like oh this is great and he liked my eyebrows he oh, john actually said that my eyebrows kind of i mean he was already leaning in the direction of me but he looked at my eyebrows and he felt that they were a sign because it was like courage's eyebrows all right as far as i'm concerned he said i think you're in i have to run this by uh you know by the network and but hopefully they'll go with me and so that's how that's how it happened kind of a cool story
0: right Yeah, that very much is, and what I find so interesting is, you're right, the one line he does as Jackie Mason in the short really just informed who Courage was going to be. Of course, he's a cowardly dog, so the screaming and yammering makes sense, but having him be a neurotic New Yorker really is an odd choice, but it works. It really makes Courage stick out because Eustace and Muriel are really subdued characters for the most part. And meanwhile, Courage is just like a high tension ball of pure energy, basically, which really works perfectly with Eustace and Muriel, more often than not, never realizing the danger they're in and only Courage knowing it. Yeah, it's great. It's great. It's all different. Yeah, it's great,
3: actually. Right?
0: Now, getting back to your vocals, a lot of the screaming and yammering, for lack of a better word, is interchangeable. So did you record new screams and yammering every time, or was there a early on recording session where you recorded a ton of them and they built an archive from it?
3: Once in a while, they would say we got it in the library once in a while, but they would have me do it every time. And I'm glad they did actually, because I wanted to, you know, I mean, I feel like, because they always felt that maybe I would come up with something and I Sometimes the scream itself would have a crack somewhere in the middle of it that would be just different. It wasn't all like, so that it would be fresh. And yes, they did. They didn't make me do every single scream, but every single time I did record, I screamed at least once. I never didn't scream in a recording session. Always I did. The same thing with the babbling, because you never know. And also sometimes with the babbling, it would include uh, it would include actual uh, occasional words within the babble that would pop up. Or specific sound like, or whatever it might be, would come as he's trying to explain. And then it, all these little visual images would come up. As I was doing that... So they would need that to be very kind of specific. And so, yeah, it was pretty much every time.
0: So we have the crew assembled and a fast approaching premiere date. So it's time to get to work. Now, while there were plenty of guest writers, and we'll get into that, when you check out the credits of this show, it's amazing how tight knit the group was and how short of a list of the usual suspects there are. For instance, John, you directed every single episode of the show and wrote six episodes, two of which are there's only two-parters in the entire series. That's borderline unheard of for a creator to be that involved in the day-to-day operations and every single episode of their own show. So John, what was the reason behind this and how did you feel working that closely on all of them? And do you think that really impacted the way the show felt?
1: It was exciting. That's why I did it. And also I have a very particular production methodology. And that is, I have to bless every department with my involvement. And and it's because I can do all of the departments. Oh, the music is, I can't do. Sound effects, I can't do. But I have such a great ear and I know exactly what I want. Um, The premises for every story, a majority, large majority was written, were written by me because if the premise wasn't there, I wasn't interested in doing the story. And um, I had a writer's meeting a workshop that was modeled after Termite Terrace from Warner Brothers. Where we had all these writers uh, with David Cohen being our head writer And we had just funny people and people that were in different um, uh, mediums of writing. Let's say one was a playwright, for instance. So we would have structure and characterization and somebody that could tell us if we were off. And I had a unique way of working. Uh, I would sit there with everyone and we would beat out this premise and then that premise would go off for a draft, a treatment, and then I would get that treatment, and I would edit that. And then I'd send that back to David. and then we would meet again and develop that treatment into a script. And then David would touch David would write the script or whoever was writing at the time. We had other guest writers, and that script would go to me, and I would start editing and and rewriting here and there, and I would actually do designs for the for the, the design department, and even animation poses on the scripts. And one of the one of the things I most wish I had preserved were those original Dilworth doodled edited scripts with the little drawings on them. Wow. Anyway, so it was just like that. I I got involved in everything. I'm a filmmaker. I'm not a I'm not in TV. I was I'm still making films. And as a filmmaker, I, I I see the whole thing. I know exact. You know I know what I want.
0: And I think that's what makes Courage one of the most unique shows on TV at the time. And I don't even mean just Cartoon Network or kids shows. I mean just
1: shows in general. Well, I don't want to come across as some megalomaniac. We had amazing talents. And I'd like to think that this talent, this level of competency was only improved by their trust in the director, in the director's vision. It wasn't like I was closed. I was completely open. Ideas can come and go, but if something was was a good idea, uh, you know, I didn't deny it, I used it. And among our team that was especially valuable to me was the uh, multi-hyphenated, talented William Hohauser, who, you know, I like to joke, we used to joke, that he was my abai works, if I played the role of Walt Disney, you know, it's just this amazing talent that, I mean, we've collaborated for over 30 years, I think 35 years, and we're working on our new film right now. So yeah, it's all these great people, and they, uh, you know, I I chose well.
0: (laughs) You sure did, and one of your wisest choices was picking David. You know, when I started this, I was planning on doing a joke in the intro, uh, like, oh, you know, David wrote a couple episodes here and there, nothing major, because ha ha ha, he's the head writer, of course he wrote a ton. But when I say he wrote a ton, he really did. It took me forever to list out how many episodes he wrote. David was a writing machine, having penned 44 of the 102 segments of the series. Nearly half of the show was written by him much like John's contribution in the directing side, that's insane. You don't hear about that too often. So David, what was it like being the head writer and what was it like writing that many episodes?
4: Well, yeah, you know, as head writer, I directed the writing and I did, I did some, I like to do as little rewriting as possible. I want the writers to, you know, really get to know the show, which is hard to do. when they're not, like a staff they're revolving door of freelancers but uh in order to meet our production uh uh, schedule in, in uh our accelerated second season we doubled episodes and i had a if i wrote an episode myself it took less time to get it through the pipeline than if someone else was writing it it took up less of my time you know so uh i had to write a lot of episodes myself for a while but yeah i wrote about half of them I certainly had my uh, hand in uh, most of the others. I mean, certainly, and there were very few. It was one or two at the beginning that I wasn't there for, uh, or that involved in, and and then a, a couple that John kind of owned entirely. And, and just like, certainly, have your vision, and and you know, if I had any thoughts, I would offer them. But other than that, yeah, I, I was. My fingerprints are all over all over the show. And, uh, and its fingerprints, its paw prints are all over me. So we're
0: in the writer's room. What's typically the first step to creating an episode?
4: We had three uh, people besides myself and John at the writer's table. Irv Bauer, William Hohauser, and Michelle Dilworth, John's sister, uh, were at the table as, you know, as writers or, or like William was is, is really great with gags, you know. So they had different things to offer, and then we would bring in the freelancer of the week uh, and hammer out a story. And because of production exigencies and 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 all of that, we yeah, I really didn't. I wanted to have a, a you know a solid sense of the story before the writer left the room to go and write, you know, a, a, an outline. Uh, so you don't want surprises down the line from that. But Irv wrote many episodes uh, and um, William, I don't think, I'm not sure if he was credited as a writer on any episodes, but he's, you know, contributed to the writing and is probably listed as such on the show. And it was wonderful watching Michelle, John's sister, really kind of develop and, uh, I remember when she wrote her first script and she only wrote a couple, but it, it was really good. And it just made me feel so good because she I don't think she'd had that experience before of writing a full script on her own. So I was kind of given these these people as sort of consultants, you know, and the, you know, they were John's hires. And then I, I as has been the case often in my career, I'm I'm brought into a room of people and say, Okay, you're in charge of this part of the show. Win everyone's trust and make it work. <laughs> So with Courage, it was easy because it was such a solid concept from the beginning, such a brilliant idea. And John's uh, conception of th- these three characters in the middle of literally nowhere, uh, visited by every, And one of them is a lightning rod for evil, and she can't even perceive evil, <laughs> you know. And of course, it was a gem, and sweet little Courage has to protect her and live up to his name, uh, and and the farmer i mean we all we all know eustace it was uh, uh it was a gold mine uh, 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 of character generated stories it wasn't just about the guest the guest monster of the week you know it was what will challenge our characters what will challenge courage the most and you know what are his fears it, it, it was and it was interesting because we, we brought in we had several freelancers who wrote several episodes and you know the show sort of takes on its voice as episodes get written and I'm hearing things and John's hearing things. And, you know, I could sort of hear within the first you know few episodes as we found certain, or so as I found certain uh, rhythms for the characters, both in terms of their actions and their desires and their voices.
0: Now, one of the most recognizable elements of the show is the soundtrack. And it, hands down, is one of my favorites of all time. And I think it's very underrated and is quite possibly one of the best soundtracks to any TV show ever. So, John, what was the process like in creating what your vision for the soundtrack would be?
1: Well, immediately, I wanted the cartoon to sound like cinema. So it, it, every cartoon, we scored it by, as though it were a feature film. And... Uh, Jody Gray and Andy Ezrin uh, were, uh, this is exactly their style. We were very lucky. But the original short was composed by Stephen Saltzman in L.A. And I I was still after the same theatrical vibe.
0: Well, you for sure got that feeling with Andy and Jody. Now, Jody, I have to say, rewatching the series I am blown away at the complexity and uniqueness behind every piece of music you guys wrote for this show. From this era of kids entertainment, you mostly see people gushing over the Spielberg produced shows like Animaniacs or Tiny Toons. And don't get me wrong, we absolutely should because those also contain some of the greatest pieces of music. But when you look pound for pound, everything Jody and Andy did in here, it's truly breathtaking. To start with, you had a series of reoccurring themes that we'd hear basically every episode. He had the establishing shots of the farm, the music for the main trio, the bongo scene when Courage will be running, and of course the opening and closing credits music. Now these are all classics, of course, but what I want to focus in on is the villain themes, themes for new characters that were one-offs, the locales, etc. A lot of shows would have been a little lazier and not put as much effort into something we were going to hear only one time, but that's not the case with you guys. Every guest villain, friend, and location was given its own iconic theme that are so well-crafted and so recognizable that a lot of fans can know who it's for without seeing an image of the character.
5: Totally get it, yeah.
0: Really, the only other show that I can think of from that time period that had that iconic of a theme, so there's villains and
5: side characters that you could do that
0: with, was Batman the Animated Series. Thank you very much
5: for those accolades, because, you know, um, we really were encouraged by John to do something that was completely out of the box. You know, it's, it's very much animation music, but he wanted us to score it like it was cinema. Like a show like, here's my Jalost t-shirt. You know, like jalo's I mean, that's like cinematic. I mean, it was like on a smaller scale, but it wasn't normally, um, at least for us, we didn't think of it as car- cartoon music at all. We just thought like, what can we do here that's really out and weird and strange but yet tells the story, you know? It was really, John just kind of gave us a really long leash and we just ran with it.
0: Well, it shows. And I know for one, I'm not the only one who would want to see the show's soundtrack released on vinyl, kind of like what Nickelodeon did for Hey Arnold, The Adventures of Pete and Pete, and what Disney's done for a lot of its own movies.
5: We're kind of working on that right now to see if we can do a 25th anniversary like little box like a two cd set with a with you know like a purple vinyl with black polka dots or something you know something that's very courage-esque uh it's not um it's not a secret but yet the ink isn't dry yet we don't know exactly what's going to happen but uh we will certainly let uh you know so let everyone i have a list of people who have been asking for courage music for like the last 15 years. Just so I have a separate email, email, uh, folder of all those folks.
0: I think that really just speaks to the quality of the music that we want to experience it solely on its own merits. as just a piece of music, the amount of effort and skill that went into this is just mind boggling, not just the themes, but the songs, the characters sing, the stuff you hear on the radio, the jingles on the TV etc. It's all really impressive and all so well crafted.
5: And it took forever because you're right. Every single show had original themes. There's there's like 5,000 pieces of music or something ridiculous.
0: Wow, that's both hard to believe and also not hard to believe. But I guess it really just goes to show, again, the quality that you guys put into this. If this hypothetical soundtrack ever comes out, I really pity the person who has to try and figure out what needs to be left off because you're going to take a lot of people off,
5: no matter what's excluded. Volume, volume one and volume two, of course.
0: Exactly. We're doubling the profits right out of the gate. This is perfect. <laughs> um, now this segues into my next question. There's obviously all the iconic themes that we've discussed. But what I want to focus on next is the diegetic songs that we either hear characters playing or singing or listening to in the show. Um, Two of the ones I like the most are Doc Gerbils, supposedly ear grating It's a Small World-esque song. It's Doc
1: Gerbils' world. It's Doc Gerbils'
0: world. And The Man in Gauze, which was one of King Ramsey's curse. Again, supposedly ear grating, but I really liked it.
5: It starts.
0: Now, given the fact that these songs play a large role in the episodes plots, um, how involved were the writers and John on them? Were they kind of just script notes saying, insert, it's a small world esque song here, or were they directly involved in writing them
5: on that one? Actually, so John came in when we were scoring that. And he said, you know, let's do like a really bizarre version of It's a Small World. So that's Andy, John, and I singing It's Doc Jerobo's World forever on that. But we played this stupid accordion and tuba stuff over and over and over again with the same line. So obviously, it's really grating. But that's Andy, John, and I. We wrote that together in the room and just did it. The other stuff, uh, Ramses, so Andy and I kind of sat down at one o'clock on the morning and said, you know, what would be like the worst imaginable music that would kill us? Like, again, like really terrible 70s disco. What can we, you know, what can we come up with? And hence, you know, that's the King Rams, King Ramses, the man in gauze, the man in gauze, you know, it was just ridiculous. Uh, he's no Santa Claus, you know, it was just um, what we could come up with that would be really silly. And that was one of the most creative um, uh, parts of that, simply because the other um, sort of bits of pestilence were more or less, you know, there was the, the you know, the, the crickets, um, the locusts rather and all that stuff. Those are like normal things. But that was something that we could really dig our teeth into. And I. it's so many it's so funny because so many people rip that off of the show and they're use that as, using it as ringtones. So like their phones are the managers, the managers it it's really funny.
0: Now, continuing with the creativity Jody was mentioning, a lot of the themes would have a logically appropriate springboard stemming off of what the audience would expect from a character or location. So a theme like Ramsey's would be logical to have an Egyptian flair to it.
1: Return the slide. This night, you will be visited by three plagues, each worse than the last. Return the slab.
0: Or in the hunchback, you know, have bells prominently throughout. And then anything sci-fi related, given the show's 1950s B-movie aesthetic, you could really lean into the theremin music. Yes, exactly. Even characters that are pretty unique, like the Clutching Foot, the fact that he's a gangster kind of informs where the music goes. We're gonna pull a heist, see?
3: Yeah, a heist. It's Sunday and the banks are closed.
0: So we knock over a bank, see? Now these are all obviously great, but what I want to focus in on now is themes or characters or locations where the audience wouldn't have a preconceived notion or line of logic that they could expect in the score. Like, for instance, what do raccoon bandits get? What's Bigfoot's score like? So, Jody, overall, what was the process like in these cases?
5: It's a good question. Really good question. Um, so, specifically, actually, the thing that you're talking about, um, the show with the raccoons, uh, Muriel and Eustace are out in the woods, and there are these kind of mischievous or downright evil, you know, raccoons that are wreaking havoc on the campsite. It started out with this kind of um, beautiful morning scene where the sun's coming up and stuff. So we kind of went to um, the part in the very famous classical piece by Grieg, The Hall of the Mountain King. And so we started off with that. And then we kind of um, you know, went off in different directions, but that was something that wasn't necessarily specific to those characters. Uh, it was more like the ambiance of the whole thing being in the outdoors and all that kind of stuff. And um, we just used some really dark kind of thematic stuff, stabs or dark, weird sounding stuff. but it wasn't really thematic in the same way that something like, you know, Jollister's or something, melodic, wasn't necessarily melodic. Uh Muriel! Muriel!
3: This is no time for a nap!
5: So, all of those things we would try to like um, put in something that would be, you know, obvious. Like there's a Nutcrackers one where he actually did this weird version of the Nutcracker suite from Tchaikovsky. <laughs> we took the the classical stuff, which also John was a huge fan of, because he's such a giant fan of Warner Brothers cartoons, and they used to use like a lot of classical music in that. So we would take the classical music and you know put it on its ass. We'd do different things with it, um, use different orchestrations, um, and so we were always kind of like, "What can we do that's different here?" And if it wasn't driven by the villain or the villain wasn't strong enough. You know, like um, you had mentioned the Hunchback thing. Okay, Hunchback wasn't a villain. You know, Hunchback was just misunderstood. And so because of Quasimodo and the Hunchback of Notre Dame and stuff, we put the bells in. We just thought, oh, that'll work. And because he was playing bells already. So sometimes it was like baked into, there, into, into the sequence. It was like, oh, okay, I see, this will work and let's try this. And sometimes we tried a lot of stuff that didn't work before we landed on something that did. As an adult re-watching the show,
0: I really enjoyed the mixed media that we got to see in this series, something you really didn't get to see back in the 90s. Anything
3: worth its value is worth fighting for.
0: You would think this would not work whatsoever and create a very disjointed show, but it works here. I think the reason why it works is because Courage is an otherworldly show to begin with. You're dealing with aliens, ghosts, monsters, and just a lot of weird things. So them looking weird, or the world around it that Courage is reacting to, looking off from the usual world we're seeing in 2D cartoons, really informs and builds upon the character of the show and I don't think you can mistake it for any other series. Nice thing was John
2: wanted create, you know, like style changes. He he didn't want it to look the same all the time. He he really was into all different style, you know, style changes on the show. So I actually got to animate a couple of things. I, I, a lot of the TV commercials are mine. I made them, uh, you know, with the cutouts or, or or whatever. And there's nothing good on television either. A lot of it's John, a lot of the show's John, you know, it, it, a lot of that, 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 that darkness and that, you know, that undercurrent that's in a lot of the episodes really came from John. I, I don't think the, the rest of the writers of the crew were really going to go in that direction. I certainly wouldn't, uh, or I certainly wouldn't do it in the way John wanted it. So, you know, people who like the show for that have to thank John. Uh, people who who like the show because the farmer fell down the stairs at some point can thank me.
0: Eustace falling down the stairs actually was one of my favorite elements of this show. So thank you. (laughs) I do too. He should fall down the stairs a lot, often. There should be a whole episode where it's just an
2: endless staircase in an Escher house where it goes up and then down and this way. It's just the farmer falling. I would watch that for about, okay, not 10 minutes, nine.
0: (laughs) I know you're partially joking, but that actually would have been a very good gag. Like 30 seconds into the episode, Eustace falls down the stairs. And just for the rest of the episode, as Courage and Muriel are doing their thing, you see him falling in the background or the foreground. And in the final 30 seconds of the show, he stops. And then maybe a piano falls on him for good measure.
2: Yeah, he's just still falling. And that's that's his fate for the entire episode, for the entire
0: 10 minutes. That's his fate. That We could have gone there at some point. Oh, I always liked as a kid, but rewatching it as an adult, Seeing Eustace being constantly punished or injured, whether he currently deserves it or not, are some of the best gags in the show. Now, I don't know if you came up with it or someone else came up with it, but I think my all time favorite joke from the series comes from the episode Family Business. The group is at Mount Rushmore, and Courage and Muriel are discussing something with a character while Eustace is off camera, and then this happens Uncle Twinkle Toes,
5: you're out too!
0: The giant squirrel is not the villain of the episode. That's the only time he's in it. There's no other giant squirrels. It just completely comes out of left field and is so funny because none of the characters address it.
2: Well, you know, there's a there's a, there's a thing about the show. Now, you know, I have to say, from inexperience, I mean, I worked on other animation projects after the show. Uh, nothing that really made it to the air. A lot of pilots, but um, I uh, from the other shows I worked on, I I could say that the imagination that we had the freedom to, to do on this show was not norm, not typical. I, I, as I said, there may be other shows where, yeah, you could throw in a gag at the, almost the last minute and, and then gets animated, you know, because that, that's, a, that's a big process, having it actually animated and, and, and ready. Uh, but we had a lot of freedom. So, you know, our whole process of writing uh, a, a, an episode would be like, okay, we all came into the, the boardroom or the conf- conference room, whatever you wanted to call it, big, t- big table room with chairs. That was the room we went in. And it would be like, okay, what are we doing today? And okay, today we're writing a story and John would say, oh, I want something, you know, uh, about, I was thinking Bigfoot, you know, uh, so like like the Bigfoot episode we had. And okay, and anything else? And he might have something else that he was thinking about, or we would just start the the all of us in the room would just start throwing stuff in and 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 you know, hammering an outline and and coming up with some basic funny stuff or or plot points. Um, and this room, almost every episode, I can't say all of them, uh, but ninety five percent would be John, David Cohen, who who was like sort of an anchor, you know, he's sort of like the scripting anchor of the show. He had the most experience. I mean, he'd been working on sitcoms and other animated things for years. And, you know, he he really kept the thing there. And then there would be Irv Bauer, who's passed away at this point. And uh, uh, he sort of came out of this more of a dramatic, theatrical school. I mean, he he worked on some films, but most of his stuff were plays. So he actually came from a very odd background. But John wanted him for that. You know, it was it wasn't like oh, you know, oh, we're all talking the same language. You know, you get that on on um, a lot of network stuff where you look at it, you, you realize everyone's talking the same language. Who's working on it, and it, it's very rote, or you know, or maybe some people like rote, but. You know, it's very, you know what I'm saying? You know, it's just very rote. It's like, okay, you know, someone's gonna say this, someone's gotta respond. Oh, that idiot, you know, who likes him? And then the door opens, it's the idiot, ha oh, ha ha. You know, very rote stuff. Then there was, uh, so it was John, David, Irv, and then the hired writer for the episode, a lot of, you know, experienced industry people, uh, who more or less basically worked on pre, not preschool, but, you know, younger stuff. And we were sort of aiming higher, but they were brought in network basically wanted these people and okay, fine, good. And they're mostly, mostly friends with David. And so he knew all of them. And then there was me, you know, it's this sort of like, what's this guy at the end of the table, what's he doing here? You know, uh, And we would just hammer a show together uh, in rough you know, come up with a little bit of the dialogue, not too much, uh, but the plot points would all be there. And then it would go to the writer of the episode. Sometimes it was David. Once in a while it was Irv, uh, never me. I wasn't allowed because I didn't have it. Wasn't, I wasn't Writers Guild and I still not because I worked on a cartoon and the Writers Guild says, if you work on a cartoon, you're not a writer. So I'm not a writer. So there you go, you know, it's, it's revealed. You're a writer in my heart. Thank you so much. In reality, I am a writer, but by the bureaucracy, I am not. I, uh, I am whatever you know. I'm the I'm the, the gaffer, the key grip, whatever. So so the point is. So anyway, it would go to the writer of the episode, and then they would come back with a script, and we would go over the script and make you know just go over it, see that you know it's it's something that could go to the storyboard artist, and. Uh, At that point, we would throw in gags. Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, you know, this section here, page six. Boring, you know, it's just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Move the plot along. No, 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 move the plot along and throw something funny in if we can. And so, you know, we would write in little things that would go to the story. And sometimes we put in notes for the storyboard artist, but that would go to the storyboard artist. And sometimes it was someone in house, but frequently it was like farmed out by, by network decree. So, you know, it would go to these people who had no connection to us. And, um, you know, that was a problem. Uh, But it gave us a storyboard to work on. So, like, one of the storyboard uh, places was this storyboard farm. I I don't know how to call it in Spain. And I'm sure they were budget and uh, they came in very much, you know, cheap. But everything would come back looking like it was an asterisk cartoon uh, animation or or sort of Smurfy too, a little Smurfy. And everything would look like, it's like, wait a minute, what is this? Everything's wrong. (laughs) We have to redraw the panels that look like uh, it was a Smurf cartoon. I mean, you know, that was like the way that poses and stuff like that would be not poses from our character sheets, it would be poses from the Smurfs. And we would have to fix that, but we would get the storyboards back And we would put them on the camera and then lay them on the vocal track, which had been done already. You know, we had the vocal track ready. And we would see if it was working. We would see if it was even 10 minutes. We would see if it was 14 minutes. You know, it's like, okay, we got to do something here. And then as it's playing with the vocal track and, you know, the drawings popping up, you know, uh, uh, you know, I, I, Am I assuming something that that your viewers know what a storyboard looks like when it's made into an animatic, or am I jumping the gun
0: here? Even though the show is called Second Rate Film School and that implies shoddiness, I like to think that my audience has a high caliber knowledge of TV and film industry terms. Just in case you're not, though, a storyboard is a rough image that allows the director, writer, or in this case also animators, see what the story is going to look like and kind of get an idea if it's going to work or not. An animatic just takes those storyboards and lays over an audio track on it, kind of making a live action comic book, much like the ones I have up on my channel. But again, I assume they know that. So how dare you insult my audience? Audience, I bow
2: to your smartness. There we
0: go. Anyway, we would we'd run it and then we would see with
2: like, okay, this isn't so funny or, you know, maybe we need to add something here or we would see a joke that wasn't clear. That was the thing. It was like sometimes the joke was not clear until you actually had it moving. You know, I mean, the you know, animatics aren't—they aren't moving per se. But I mean, you know, uh, they were just shot, 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 shot. Uh, you know, extreme, extreme, extreme things like that. And we would sit there and draw new drawings, and uh, you know adjust the animatic and throw in new gags sometimes so like the like me i before i said the farmer falling down the stairs i know when i saw that i said when that scene had. it was like he scared courage with a mask or something and it was like and then it just ended and i was like no something's got to cap this he's got to fall down the stairs in the to the basement and I, and I was like okay we drew it and we put it in and i found the Lionel going out ow, ooh, ow, ooh, from somewheres. And that was it that ended up, in, I guess it ended up in the show. I don't remember. Maybe John cut it out. How dare he do that? That guy's an idiot. Um, but that's how it worked. So it was very fluid, even sometimes into the, when John would get the masters back, he would re-edit the shows a little, you know, or add a sound effect or, you know, you know, do something. So courage was, was like, you know, it wasn't like, okay, okay, we have the story meeting, writer, uh, storyboard artist, everything is finished at that point. We would, it would be very open to suggestions. So we were sitting in, the, in my edit room doing the animatics and we had, everyone had like something to draw on. We had little paper of animat, you know, little, you know, screens with um, printed on paper and be like, I was, you know, the first year, it was um, uh, Joe Maidenberg, uh, I believe, and Rain Wu, and then the, the second year, it they left, and uh, it was, for the rest of the seasons, it was uh, uh, Dan O'Connor and Jim Mitchell, uh, who were sitting there, and we would just draw, and draw, and, and stick stuff, and John was, was, was there for the first two years, basically, and then the, third season and the fourth season, there was only four seasons, even though they released it as five. Okay, it was really four. That's another story. Um, they, uh, we'd say we just fixing and, and adding. And, and, and at one point, there, the, the snowman episode, I remember the storyboard came in and and a disco ball comes down and a light started. And I I don't remember exactly what the original was, but Dan said, oh, no, I'm going to have to do something. And he drew this thing where the snowman picks up his snow like, a, like it was the dress or something. And you see little twigs. He's got twig feet. And he starts dancing around to the disco music. He just came up with it. We put it in. And, you know, John calls up and goes... That was incredible.
0: (laughs) That was the best thing I've ever seen. That's how we worked. It's a great gag, and rewatching the series as a whole, I forgot how absurdly comedic this show was. We'll get into it later in the retrospective, but I think the scary nature of the show overshadows a lot of other elements of the series. In this case, the comedic goal. I think some of my favorite gags are Courage's reactions to what he's seeing. Just the insane amount of things that could happen to him or with him is just insanely funny. Oh, we wrote most of those, by the way. Those, those reaction takes, I mean, John start, you know
2: made the template. I mean, it was that those reaction takes, which are tech savory. But after a while, it was like we were just writing the script, Courage Reacts, and we would wait until the animatic session to figure out what was appropriate or or you know whatever just came into our heads. I actually have a pile of unused takes somewhere. So I don't know where they are that we just never got around to. Uh, they, I had them hanging on my wall. You know, it's like, oh, you know, courage sees something that's dumbfounding. Well what happens? Well a meteor lands on him and you know he's just there's just a rock there in the ground. You don't see him anymore. Just, you know. That was fun. That we, we had a good time, you know, oh, you know, what, you know, what what was what it? Oh, his eyes fall out of his head, roll across the world, and then he picks them up and puts them back in and then takes again, you know, because he sees it again. Uh, we made those up on the spot, usually. Uh, th- those are fun to make. I had a good time.
0: Now, an interesting aspect of the show that I didn't realize until re-watching is how quickly the characterizations of Courage, Muriel, and Eustace formed. In episode three, which contains David's first episode, Hothead, we see the full formation of Eustace as a character. Prior to this, in the first two episodes and the short, Eustace was antagonistic towards Courage, but there was a very clear line drawn between a jerk who we can laugh at getting punishment and the actual villain of the episode. In Hothead, as well as the other segment of Episode 3, Courage Meets Bigfoot, Eustace is now the full-on antagonist. In Hothead, his rage becomes literally explosive as he nearly kills Muriel and Courage over his vanity. The other segment within this episode, Courage Meets Bigfoot, introduces Eustace's greed. In this episode, we meet a benevolent Bigfoot And now Eustace is attempting to capture him so he can make a bunch of money selling him to the media. Bigfoot, come on out! Both segments now end with a richly deserved punishment for Eustace. In the case of the Bigfoot episode, he's chased away by an angry mob. And in Hothead, we get his first death in the series.
4: Thank you for noticing that. And it's a very important point. Story comes from character. And often I find that what I bring to the party when I'm brought in to sort of you know, help the writing move forward in whatever capacity I, that is, the more the character's actions are responsible for the trouble the character's in, the better the story becomes immediately. It is common to sort of approach a story from the outside in, you know, and sort of say, well, what kind of monster could come and terror, but I'd rather ask myself, well, what, what is courage's worst fear? Well, be losing Muriel. Okay, well, that's at the center of the show, but, you know, what, I mean, Eustace is such a bastard. He's constantly doing things that deserve punishment. So let's make that central to you know, his greed, you know, uh, uh, return the slab. you know his greed is what causes that to happen. And Muriel is just an innocent at the middle of it, but in the middle of it, but that doesn't mean her actions can't cause the problem and that's even funnier to me because she isn't aware that the dog food she made is what got them all into trouble, you know, but when you're trying to undo your your, your deeds or those of someone you're, you're helping, uh, it's much better than just trying to, you know, solve the problem. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I think that's a very apt observation on your part.
0: Now the most notable evolution comes from Courage himself. In the first few episodes, he talks a lot, like there's a ton of dialogue from Courage. Oh
3: no, gangsters! Muriel, get away! I just know something bad is going to happen, and I don't want to sleep in the attic. I'm telling you there's someone here, or my name's Shirley! And it's not. It may be a good night for you. You'll be in a warm bed. Birds. I don't like birds. (laughs) They always make fun of me. Here I come,
4: Muriel. I hope. Are you kidding?
3: This thing is dangerous. How do you talk to an evil shadow? Oh, I've got to stop that fox. Uh, Those rocks will stop him. What do I do? What do I do? This is crazy! I saw a burglar! I did! Hold on, Muriel! I'm coming!
0: Now that's what I call scary! Know what I mean? But as the episodes progressed, his dialogue was cut back dramatically, and for the remainder of the series, Courage is mostly silent, just acting out in pantomime and screaming and yammering, of course. So John, what was the genesis behind this decision, and how did it impact Marty's voiceover sessions?
1: well it was it was decided early on by the executive team and myself i agreed that maybe it was better that courage didn't talk and instead we just used the babble and odd phrases here and there but in terms of the recording yeah we just we had marty come in and do all his babbling but what what william and i did especially was Kind of recycle Marty's first season babbles, because we found that it those were the best of all the four seasons, and we just kept we just we created sounds. You know, it's just a natural way of recording and cutting. I'm not, I'm not. Maybe not everybody does this, but we're New Yorkers. We're independent filmmakers. We just we just make it up, right? It's like Lionel Wilson. When he passed away, we continued to use Lionel's lines throughout. We, you know, to, just to give it body, you know, because we had Arthur who was great, but Arthur's not Lionel, right?
0: Now, while I don't think the show was hurt in the slightest by having Courage's lines cut dramatically, and in fact, you can argue that Courage now talking less makes him more of a servant for the audience than he previously was, I do have to ask, Marty, what was your recollection of these events and how did you feel about it as an actor? So they loved, you know, they, lo- it,
3: they were loving what I was doing with it. John had fallen in love with me and chose me over 300 other much more experienced voiceover artists because he liked the quality of my voice. He just felt I had something that just seemed to make sense for courage. So anyway, that being said, they told me that they're gonna cut back on the vocals for courage, right? And I was like, oh, you know, as an actor, my ego was, you know, not terribly happy, right? But I mean, and I was curious as to why. Um, They said it had nothing to do with you, really. It had to do with basically we, uh, some of the writing was in a sense by having him go, what'll I do? What'll I do? Or I'll save you, Muriel. Instead, he's just going to save Muriel. And that the things that people loved most were the screams. They love that. That's what they laughed most from. So they put it in front of Uh, what do they call, they said they, 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 they gave it to uh, these um, focus groups. Yes. And they didn't ask them if they thought courage shouldn't talk. They just noticed that they were laughing more and responding more to some of those more action oriented things that I'd be doing. Right. And so I, they made a leap, which said, well, you know, let's just cut back because It slows things down. It's slowing things down. Uh, It's not that Marty's performance is a problem. It's just that the idea that there's so much going on that let's just take cut back on that. And so it just be more streamlined. The irony of this is that I go to these film, I go to these uh, conventions. I do a lot of conventions, right? And every convention people are asking me to quote, Quotes of courage, the things I do for love, I'll save you, Muriel, or uh, I have a feeling something bad is going to happen. Things like that, right? They're all asking me for the words. These are the fans. These are the people that watched, watch the goddamn show. May I say, um, so you know, and that actually loved the show and continue to love it. The real diehard people, right? Someone like yourself, perhaps. So.
0: Let me ask you a question. What do you think about the words? (laughs) They were the worst part of the show. No, no, I kid. Um, Truthfully, I don't recall there being that sharp of a drop-off in his lines. Clearly there was, but I chalk it up to watching the show a lot in reruns and syndication that those early season one episodes were sprinkled a lot in through the other ones. Right. So to me, it just seemed like there were episodes where Courage talked and episodes where he didn't Probably equal measures, even though that was not the case at all. Like you said, I remember all the lines like, I'll save you, Muriel, and the things I do for love, and my personal favorite running gag, if blank is X, then my name is... And it's not, yeah. ...being a lot more prominent than they actually were. So yeah, I think just childhood me didn't actually notice the drop in lines that dramatically due to the reruns. I love all those lines, and they are a core memory for me, but I do see the inclination to cut the lines out. Those early episodes are quite wordy, and for the most part, Kurt is just talking to himself, aka the audience, so it's not really needed to progress the plot, and as we saw later on, his pantomime and screaming told the story just as well. It also just makes sense why no one listens to him. Previously, he's talking, but for some reason they're ignoring him. Now he's babbling, and they don't understand him, so that makes the danger even more heightened. That being said, I think they cut the dialogue down more than they needed to. So instead of 90% less, maybe cut it down by 50%. Yes. That allows him to have his reoccurring jokes. And in slower episodes, he can talk to some of the side characters, like the hunchback, for instance. Exactly. So, but it doesn't matter because I'll tell you really
3: honestly, uh, it's not as if people who came in on episode, you know, season two, loved Courage any the less. You know, when they walked in on season two and never saw season one, they were still enjoying the shit out of them. And whatever I was doing, I definitely did. I felt, to be honest with you, uh, Andrew, I felt it was more of a challenge for me to keep the character, you know, you know, I was, I was, it wasn't, it still was very distinctive. And I, you know, in its own way, it forced me not to, to communicate without being too, you know, overkill on the, you know, you know, precious about this. I was able to communicate. Without words, and I, you know, but just with sounds, and I think that's kind of a cool thing. Anyway, it was just the ego of me, but I think it also was that my ego. So who cares about my ego? Uh, the the bottom, and it wasn't personal. When they oh, I was doing a bad job, uh, but and actors have ridiculous egos. I try not to. I fancy myself someone who's not so much that. But you know, back then, I listen. It was my first cartoon, and this is. You know, the you know, I was very excited to be a part of it. And so I was like, oh, shit, they're cutting back on the words. You know, it was a little tough for me to, to deal with. But I got through it. And then I got excited. I said, Marty, you're getting paid to do this character. I had no idea that it would be this successful, by the way, or that so many people would love it and would look back upon it with a lot of emotions and stuff. So that's very, very cool for me to
0: realize that you know so marty now that you didn't have any specific lines just screaming yammering and the occasional specific sound effect courage would have to make what was john's direction like was it a specific you need to scream or yammer like this or did the script just say courage reacts courage screams and they let you do whatever you wanted i'm gonna go back to you what do you think
3: what i'm gonna answer you but i'm just curious what would you suspect
0: Based on what you saw. I kind of assume it was a hybrid of the two where he would in detail tell you what the monster looked like, the type of injuries Kirk sustained, what he saw, et cetera, the type of reaction he wanted. And then they would let you go from there.
3: Yes, absolutely. I mean, the thing is the very thing that, you know, to his credit, he didn't, he took a shot with me. He didn't know if I would hold how did he know I would hold up down the line, probably maybe a suspicion from my audition that I was talented and yeah, energetic. And I would probably do, he probably had a suspicion, but he could have gone with proven voice actors that were proven to have done this sort of thing. And he didn't go for them because he went with thinking out of the box a little bit. I, I, that's what I, I think was kind of cool. So essentially, it's. You know, what is the old expression when the uh, student is ready, the teacher will come. Whatever it is, the point is, John needed me to, you know, help him, you know, realize this. Yes, he knew he had it in his mind and he can only explain it so much because he can't, like, have me be in his mind. But what he did was mostly John did not direct me most of the time. Uh, once here and there he would direct me he'd be in the booth and directing me but uh, most of the time about 75 80 percent of the time uh it was i was being directed by uh peter uh fernandez uh you know who was the vocal director of the show and he was the the main guy and and john and him met and had numerous discussions of the kinds of things he was looking for Uh, But even Peter was like, I, I, what do you got, Marty? (laughs) Sometimes it would be like, what do you got? And, you know, mostly they were happy with it. You know, they were pleased. And John was, you know, tickled and everybody was tickled about it. But ultimately it was like, um, you know, really it, truly was once it was established and they liked it then they you know it was smart enough to know that pretty much this is what it is and then they now know okay we when when he's going they knew like they didn't need to work on that like that was already marty had it at will he could do that so we'll just say, yeah, give me some of that courage babble. And I knew what it is, what it means, or how long. Make it a little longer, good, that's great. I think we got, then it was just really, sometimes these things would go really fast because it was like, you know, a lot to do. You want to get this stuff recorded, you know? Because the real hard part of the animation, of anime, you know, animation uh, stuff is, you know, has to be done, you know.
0: Now jumping off this point, Jody. There are now large chunks of the episode where Courage has no lines. So your music has to do a little bit more of the heavy lifting here, almost acting like the score for a silent cartoon. But on the flip side, there are lots of scenes of talking with other characters. So then you have to score it like a normal cartoon. You basically had to create a silent cartoon score and a sound cartoon score and make them work together. So what was the process now writing a score like this when you never originally intended to?
5: That's that's a good question. I think there was as far as courage no longer speaking or when um, it just became a montage, there was um, just more room. So we just filled it up. You know, it wasn't like a, a conscious effort on our part. It was just like, oh, this needs something here. And I would say nine out of 10 times, John liked all that stuff. And then one time he say, oh, there's too much music here. And also, I, um, one of the other things is Michael Geisler, who was the uh, sound designer and did all the sound effects on the show. Um, you know, I mixed all that stuff with John. So we all sat in the room together and we made decisions as far as what was more effective. Was the music needed here or just the sound effect? design or sound effects or should they be together so it was like if it became too cluttered we removed stuff so it was like we scored the thing and that was the first pass but the final mix of the whole thing we put the whole show together that was when we made those final decisions so um, sometimes like we overdid it because we didn't know what john was going to want to take out
0: your line of the music being a little cluttered at times and having to cut some of it back just reminds me of that scene in Amadeus where the emperor says, Your work is ingenious. It's quality work.
4: And there are simply too many notes. That's all. Just cut a few and it'll be perfect.
5: Yeah, which notes? Which notes, sire? You know? <laughs> yeah. But this is, yeah, this is more like clutter. Like if something was on top of each other and, and it was sort of like one was felt stronger than the other, the stronger would stay. The sound design might go, you know, in the case of one scene where we took all the sounds out, sounds out, which, you know, was in uh, Dr. Gerbil, the chase scene, like all of the sound was removed, with the exception of the dialogue. And we wrote a choir piece for that chase scene. It's like whoa all you know tons of fans have written about that forever like what the hell is that all about you know it's so great you know um well it was just like doing trying to do something different always trying to do something different
0: and you always amaze us by doing something different every time well, i think that's a good note to end the first part of this retrospective on so i'd like to thank our guests john david william jody and marty for stopping by today and giving us a peek behind the curtain of how Kirch the Cowardly Dog is made. So join us in part two as we discuss a character who is very... Naughty. As well as the often overlooked heart of the series. Until next time, I'm Andrew Wass, and I hope you've enjoyed your time with us.
3: We'll be back in just a minute. Of course, in dog years, that's... Hey, wait! My career could be over by then!